Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you, Lord, for the ways that you've been working in each one of our lives this week. And God, maybe you've been bringing challenges to us. God, maybe you're bringing hardships. Maybe you've been bringing joy. New relationships. Or maybe you've been ending relationships. God, whatever it is, Lord, we believe that you have been stirring and shaping and forming us in a beautiful way. And Father, we thank you for that sovereignty. We thank you for that, that love, God. We thank you for that grace that even though we are sinners and we are broken, you have been persistent with us. And God, I ask that in this time to come, um, that you speak through me. God, that you interrupt any agenda that I have that is not yours. That only your words would be said this morning. God, that you would take this messy sermon that I have in front of me, God, and that you would transform that into something powerful for your purpose, for your kingdom. And that we might know you more. And that we might be more drawn to you, more in love with you because of it. But Father, I particularly ask that this morning you stir our hearts, you challenge us. So that as we walk out of the doors this morning, we leave more challenged, convicted, and empowered to be your people in this city. That we might be salt and light to the world around us to our family, to our friends, to our co-workers, to our neighbors, to the people we know and the people we don't know, God, that we might be a light, your light, for this world. Father, we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. On my uh, undergraduate degree, which um, feels like a long time now, ago. I was graduated in 08, um, but I studied religion at San Diego State University. It was a, the topic was like world religion. It wasn't just any one religion, it was just world religions uh, and studying religious perspective, religious thought, uh, religious throughout history, religion and science. Um, just the idea is just to get a whole perspective of how religion has been a part of society in the world. And, and you might think that in this class, and it was a small class, you know, my graduating class was like 30 people or something like that. You might think that in this class of 30 people that there would be a lot of um, religious people. People like myself uh, who grew up religious and is wanting to explore, expand, and just reshape that interest, that passion that I had. Um, but that was <laughs> far from the truth. Um, most people studying religion, at least in the environment that I was, was studying it because they were simply, and I'm, I'm just, this may sound harsh, but I think in a very real way, they were confused. They were confused about religion, and they're, and they're trying to get some kind of a pulse about what is this thing they don't understand. In fact, actually, one of my uh, friends, was my closest friend uh, when I was uh, at my time in my undergraduate studies, um, she said that she was studying religion in order to attack religion. And that she, she didn't understand it. Uh, she wanted to understand it because she wanted to critique it. 
And I found myself, for a season of my life, I found myself pursuing God in an environment where no one else was pursuing God. And it, and it was ruled. It caused me to wrestle with my faith a lot. Now, following my undergraduate degree, I went to seminary. A totally different experience. Everyone around me uh, was, was either pursuing ministry, pursuing being a missionary overseas. They were Christians, and they were really committed to their faith. And I was in an environment where I had professors that were leading classes uh, with prayer, that when you would come and meet them during office hours, they would often ask what's going on in your life, very much like a pastoral way, just what's going on in your life? What can I be praying for you right now? Totally different than what I experienced in my undergraduate degree. Everyone around me was pursuing God. I found myself amidst a bunch of people who were all on the same journey of trying to understand God more. It would be odd for someone to be in seminary that did not take God seriously. It would be a very odd thing to do. And there my faith did grow, but it grew in a very different way. It was a very safe way. Right? I was more uh, the odd one because I'm coming from this religious studies perspective, in which was kind of, I don't want to say it's liberal, but it kind of a very more liberal view of religion. Kind of, I was wrestling and thinking through things, and I'm now in a seminary where everyone's far more conservative. Right? But, but I, was, I was wrestling with my religion in a very safe way. There's nothing at stake. Following the, my, my seminary studies, I went and pursued a master's in philosophy at a, at a public university as well. And there I was right back in that same environment, like my undergraduate degree. Right? And if you don't know, that philosophy is often talked about to be the domain of atheism. Right? Most philosophers, at least in the last 80 years, 90 years, have largely been atheists. Uh, and so anytime we, the, the topic of religion or God ever came up, I was a minority to believe that, that God was real, that God existed. But here we are talking about ethics, about purpose, about meaning, about identity, in an environment where nobody cares about God. And I was the odd one that I always start the conversation. I was the odd one that people would be like, okay, here it goes, the wacko talking about Jesus again. Right? I was in an environment, again, talking about God, pursuing God in an environment where no one else was. Um, if you were put in an environment where a culture or a city that completely devalues or underappreciates, even condemns your pursuit of God, would you still pursue God? Would you still chase Jesus? If it was an illegal for you, if it was illegal for you to carry a Bible, would you carry a Bible? If it was illegal for you to attend church, would you attend church? If we were living in a country in which we had to wear tennis shoes to church just in case the police show up, that we might easily and efficiently be able to run, would you go to church? If you were the only person that cared about Jesus in the world, would you care about Jesus? That's a, I mean, that's a, that's a big thought. No one else around you cared about what you believe. And in fact, they thought you were stupid for it. Would you still care about Jesus? Because I think that, that becomes an indicator for us. It kind of puts a, a sense, a pulse on, on what we value. About whether or not we really are interested or passionate in our pursuit of God. It becomes an indicator about how serious we are in our pursuit of God. 
Because all of a sudden, seeking God becomes really hard. You look odd to seek God in an environment where no one else is. It becomes countercultural, weird, different, uncomfortable. But that, that's, that's, that's where you know how much you really want God. That's where you know how much you really, how hungry are you to hear the word of God? How hungry are you to serve God? To submit yourself to what he has for you? If you put yourself in an environment where it was very difficult to worship God, would you choose to worship God? Um, It's interesting that if you look at the history of Christianity, uh, Christianity has typically grown uh, fast in in environments where it was persecuted. And that's that's not... to say that um, every environment where Christianity is being persecuted has grown fast. But it's just saying that if you kind of look at some of the, over the, the course of the, the history of the world, or the history of Christianity, some of its fastest growing points uh, was when it was uh, most, when Christians were most persecuted for what they believe. And so there's a weird way in which, in some ways, we could say that if, if it was illegal for us to carry the Bible, um, Christianity might be growing faster here in America. If we were more persecuted, right? We have reason to think that as we kind of look through history. But why is that? Why, what it, why is there a correlation or a connection between our persecution, the persecution of Christians, and the growth of the Christian faith? And I think one, one, one thought I have towards that is because persecution always gets rid of those who are most apathetic towards Christianity. Right? In an environment where persecution, where there's persecution, you're going to find less Christians who are apathetic about their faith. Right? If you don't really care about Jesus or the Bible or church or about the growth of God's kingdom, you certainly aren't going to go to jail for it. You certainly aren't going to die for it. So all of a sudden, society shifts. And then the only people who are calling themselves Christians are people who are willing to die for the sake of Jesus, it changes the way Christianity appears. Persecutions gets rid of fake Christians. Right? And one of the biggest hindrances on Christianity are apathetic Christians. One of the biggest hindrances to Christianity is apathetic Christians. is people who, who, who approach Jesus with this kind of an indifference. But it's kind of like, yep, he he fits my needs. He he allows me to check that box off in my life that says I'm religious. And then I can leave it at that. I don't have to let it invade or change my life too much. Persecution, hardship, hostility, it gets rid of apathy. The sense of indifference. There's this word I, I, I thought I invented, but I found out that I did not invent it was a couple of years ago, I started, I started coining apatheism. It's the title of the sermon. I think it's, it's in your sermon notes. As I said, apparently it's a real word. And I looked it up, and it means exactly what, what I would have thought it meant. But it's just this combination of the word apathy. Right? This kind of a lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern about something, regard about something, and theism, a belief in God. And so apatheism uh, is when we have a kind of a lack of enthusiasm or concern about God. 
Like we don't, that's not something that we worry about. It's not something that, that shifts us or, or, or causes us to think uh, deeply about. We're just indifferent. Sure, God exists. Why not? Right, that's like apatheism. And today I want us to look at a psalm that I believe addresses apatheism very seriously. We're going to be turning to Psalm 14 uh, this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. If not, it's going to be on the screen above. I have to tell you, I was called a Grinch this week. Somebody asked me what I was preaching on. They said, what, what Christmas series are you preaching on? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> We're going to be reading Psalm 14, uh, which famously begins, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And I think as we read this and study this, we're going to see that this passage is at the heart of it dealing with apatheism. The heart of it is dealing with apatheism. Um, but let's take, take a look together, picking up right on verse 1. And we're just going to go ahead and read uh, one, 1 through 7 all the way through. And it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one. Who does good? One of the things, right, before, we, before we read on, I just want to draw our attention to this. Notice that most of what Psalm 14 is dealing with is actions. Right, just draw your attention to that, right? There is no one who does good. Then it says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortune of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Now, I found that it's popular to take uh, verse 1 and quote it in referring to atheists. And you can see these like little debates, especially like if you look online, YouTube. Right? There's so many of these uh, kind of petty debates that go on about the existence of God, and you see these atheists and theists, and they're just kind of going after each other's throat. Um, and, and it's just, honestly, there's just these kind of simple conversations. Um, people get really rude. I don't know what it is about the internet um, that allows you to just say really rude things. I think it's because you're not looking at the person in front of you, so you can say whatever and, and, and feel okay about it. Um, but you just kind of see these conversations happen. But in the middle of these debates that are going on, uh, somebody will just kind of come in and chime in and will just drop verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Like, drop the mic, I win. Like, somehow that's going to convince the atheists to, to repent and change uh, everything they've ever believed about, about God. Um, and I'm always caught up thinking, what are you doing? What do you do? What is that, what is that really trying to accomplish? Um, remember... And any kind of an argument about God, um, you're never trying to win an argument. You're trying to win people. So sometimes I'm perplexed the way that people use this verse, and it's kind of like a, an attack on the, on, the, on the character of the person. It seems off. It seems, seems odd. Um, but I think many people believe that what it is saying is that a fool says in, their, in the heart, 
or so a fool says that they're, they don't believe in God. I think a lot of us believe that that's what this passage is saying, is that a fool says there is no God. That, that that's the way we interpret it, that's the way we think about it, and, and, it, and it is reduced to what we profess. That, we're, that we're reducing what this verse is saying is that the fool says, professes that there is no God, professes with their lips. And so we think it's about what people say. We think it's about what people say, whether they say they're an atheist, whether they say they, they believe in God. Um, and that, and that what that means then, the implication of that is, is that it is simply wise to, to assert, to say there is a God. Right? That's kind of the way we think about it. But that's why I wanted to draw our attention to the fact that the rest of the psalm isn't dealing with what we say. It, it's not about what we profess with our mouth, about the words that we use. Right? The rest of verse 1 says, They are corrupt. They are abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. Immediately shifts from this, what's being said from the heart, to going on and talking about the actions. I, I appreciate uh, NLT's translations of verses 2 through 3. It says, uh, The Lord looks down from heaven on the entire human race, and he looks to see if anyone is truly wise, as if anyone seeks God. But no, all have turned away. All have become corrupt. No one does good, not a single one. And I think from that, we can see that this psalm is not about what people say with their mouth. Right? That's, not, that's not the heartbeat of what Psalm 1. It's not about what we simply say with our mouth. It's not about the status we put on Facebook about whether we say we're an atheist or whether we, we're a Christian or not. That, that is irrelevant. That's not really what the psalm is addressing. The psalm says about what people say with their hearts. Right? And, if we, and if we care about anything about what Jesus says about the heart, we understand this, that the heart is the overflow. It, it, or the heart is, is the source of our overflow of our actions. Right? It's from our heart that our actions are overflown. It's from our heart that our actions come. God cares far less about what we say with our lips and more about what we say in our heart. What does our heart say about the existence of God? About the importance of God? About the importance of the Bible? About the importance of his church? Right, but as Jesus taught, it is, it is out of the overflow of the heart that a person acts. It's the overflow of our heart that, that really shows whether or not we are good or not. Now, if you notice the psalm says, the fool says in their heart, there is no God, right? The Hebrew word for that is lev, all right? And the, the, the basic idea of this word is that it's the inner being. It's not, not so much just the physical heart, but it's like this inner being, the core of who we are. It's the thing that drives and flows out of us. It's the thing that kind of determines all of the rest of who we are. It's like our core, our soul in a way. It's the thing that, that, that is, is the source of our motivation, of our intention. You might even say it's like the, the, it's kind of the determines the thesis of our life. Kind of sets the tone for that. So what does it mean then for our heart to say something? Right? This core of who we are is an expression about whether or not God exists or God, God does not exist. And I'll say this much. It's a lot deeper than what we simply confess with our mouth. Whether or not we say God exists or not has no bearing on whether or not our heart is saying God exists. 
It's, what, it's not what you profess with your lips, it's what you profess with your life. Is it evident, is it obvious that in your day-to-day, the seven days a week of your life, is it obvious that you believe in God? That you have a high reverence for God? That you care deeply about God, you care deeply about his church, you care deeply about Jesus, the mission that he has commissioned every single one of us to. Is your life an expression of that? An indicator that, yes, God does exist? Does your life profess that? I think there are a lot of Christians who live like atheists. Who go about in their day-to-day living like atheists. And I'm not saying here that, oh, you have these atheists and they're bad people. We once attended a church a long time ago and we listened to the pastor say, you know, describe a typical atheist. And the pastor was like, oh, they smoke and they smell bad and they cuss a lot. Right? No. That's not what I'm talking about. And I'm saying that there are many Christians who live like atheists. I mean um, that we live in a way that our life is not professing that God exists. That it doesn't look, whether or not we believed in God or not, it doesn't look any different. What I mean is that there are many who profess a faith with their lips, yet demonstrate a completely different lifestyle. They say they believe in God, but they live like there's no God. They live like Jesus means nothing. They live like the Bible has no power, that prayer has no power. Um, I think that is the largest population that the psalm is addressing, the people who live practically like atheists. They live with no fear or no love for God, no trust in God. They live as if there is no God as if they are Lord of their life, that their destiny is determined by their hands and by their feet and by their mind. They live practically ignoring God. They live apathistically. I think this, is, this does certainly include about what we say. right? Because if you believe in God, it is natural that you're going to say that you believe in God. Like That's important. Right, and I think there are cer- certainly there are many Christians um, who don't say that, who are shy with their words about what they say about their faith, and in these environments in which it's odd or hostile to talk about being a Christian, there are many Christians who are then uh, reserved to talk about their faith. That that certainly happens, and that's important to talk about. But if you spend your whole life without ever talking about Jesus. To those who do not know Jesus or who do not care about Jesus, there is something wrong. And even if you just think about in the last month in your life, how many times did you talk about Jesus to people who don't know Jesus? I think that's a little bit, once again, it's an indicator about how seriously do you take the Great Commission. Is that a concern? Is that something that drives you? Is, that, is it clear that that's the mission of your life? Because if you can go a month without even saying Jesus to somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus or doesn't care about Jesus, there's something wrong. Jesus didn't say, make disciples if you feel like it. I think that's one of the things that's kind of off. That's one way we, we are pretty apathetic about Christianity. 
I think that's one thing that persecution gets rid of. Because all of a sudden, people, people they don't, they're not living like Jesus said. Go ahead and make disciples if you feel like it. And in a world where it's easy to follow Jesus, it's also easy to think or to live as if Jesus told us, make disciples if you feel like it, but that's not what he told us. It's an imperative. It was a command. And there was a sense of urgency. Right? One of the things, if you ever read the, the Gospel of Mark and just kind of a, a, you know, looked closely at it, there's this, there's this nature about Jesus and Mark that seems like he's always in a rush. He rushes from one place and he rushes to the next. It's like he's got three years to live to do this ministry. How is he going to be the most efficient way? How, how, is, he going to, how is he going to spread the gospel the most efficiently in these three years? He's always in a rush. He lives with a sense of urgency to do ministry. Do we share that? You might got 40, 30, 20, 50, 60 years left in your life, whatever it is. Are you... Are you Chasing that with a sense of urgency, like, man, I got, I got so many years left in my life. How, how do I be as efficient as possible with that? I can't think myself out of this. Sharing Jesus is a critical part of loving people. And it's a critical part of believing in Jesus, too. Right? Sharing Jesus is this critical part of believing in Jesus. It's a critical piece of loving Jesus. It's a critical part of loving people. Right? And so for us to be apathetic about our faith, that drives us to become apathetic about sharing Jesus. That's very dangerous. So to put this in perspective, if you feel pretty apathetic about sharing Jesus, I'm concerned you might be pretty apathetic towards your belief about God. And that's what this psalm is saying. That's foolish. It's simply foolish to live that way. What the psalm is ultimately saying is that it's foolish to live and act as if there is no God. And yes, it, 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 it does say, and it's implied that it's foolish to say there's no God, but it's deeper than that. I can scan through my life in this last week and examine on a day-to-day basis the times in my life that I lived as if God wasn't there. I dealt with stress and the problems in my life, thinking that it was up to me. I can think about the times that I woke up and I rushed to do my chores, I rushed to do my my agenda for the day, living in such a way like God is not important. It's interesting, C.S. Lewis talks about that the most important event in 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 a human being's uh, day is the first, like, three minutes they wake up. (laughs) Because in the first couple of minutes you wake up, you decide who you're living for. You decide right then and there, what's the most important thing for me to do today? And I can think about the mornings I wake up, and it looks as if I don't really care about this belief about God being there. This psalm is concerned about this apathyism, this kind of an apathy about our beliefs about God. So understand, the the people the psalm is talking about is not just those who say with their mouth, but also it addresses those, even all of us, from time to time, in which we live as if there's no God. 
at least that when that belief doesn't drive action. Right? That in which the belief doesn't drive action. Um, it's even more foolish, I would say, for us to be people who practically live as atheists. It's more foolish for us to profess that God exists, but yet practically ignoring it. The psalm is addressing both types of people. Uh, but I, I, want, I want to shift the question for a moment and, and ask this. Um, what does it mean by foolish? What does it mean by foolish? Why, why is it so foolish? Um, part of me has always wrestled with this psalm uh, because I think it, it just, in a, in a single um, swipe, it says that every atheist is a fool. Right, part of this, part of what the psalm is doing is that if it is foolish, then why, why are there, and I think this is my question becomes, is if it's so foolish, why are there so many intelligent atheists? Because there are a lot of very, very, very intelligent atheists. There's a lot of atheists that I respect and admire a lot. And even about why they're an atheist that I can respect and admire that. Can I understand that? I can appreciate this. Uh, but it's honestly, it's a hard pill for me to swallow. It's a hard pill for me to swallow. Um, I, I've met a lot of intelligent atheists. There's great books, there's great arguments, there's great reasons, there's great thoughts, there's so many advancements. I mean, we live in a day-to-day in which we, you know, we have technology and we have buildings, we have all these things in which depended probably, a lot of stuff, has depended upon the minds of atheists. And yet, we're calling them fools. All of them are a fool. Um, it's, it's this, there's this way in which it just seems a bit harsh. And I think one thing to understand, though, for us, and this is some ways it's kind of obvious as you study through Scripture, you, you notice there's, there's a big and important difference between intelligence and wisdom. For Scripture, it deals with wisdom and intelligence very, very, or just our knowledge. It's just different. Wisdom is just different. It deals with a different thing. Uh, you could be an incredibly intelligent fool. You could be a brilliant fool. You can be clever, smart, you can analyze buildings, you can create, solve problems, do, do science, do math. I mean, you could just be, be intelligent in so many ways and yet be a complete and utter fool. But biblically speaking, wisdom, which is really the opposite of, of foolishness, deals with our ability to discern or direct our thought. It deals with our ability to direct the way we think about our problems. It deals with, with our meaning about how we should live. Wisdom is the basis for a full life. It's the basis for a full life. It's the thing that kind of drives us about how we live. A fool could be a completely intelligent, educated, brilliant person, and they can miss this practical thought about, am I leading a full life? Am I leading a meaningful life? So the foolishness of, of, of an atheism, it's just addressing, I think, in part, a kind of a closed-mindedness. And from, from a biblical perspective, I would say that's obviously true. Because if you read the Bible, it assumes, it presumes, it shows that like God is there. He is real. So any, at any point in time we make, we live or we say that God doesn't exist, from a biblical perspective, it just seems like, well, that's obviously closed-minded. You're ignoring the existence of something that clearly exists, right? So from a biblical perspective, that's what it's speaking from. And as I said, there's part of me that just feels it's kind of harsh. <laughs> it isn't necessarily entirely fair to the atheist to just kind of make this broad stroke that they're closed-minded. But it is interesting. If you kind of study the history of atheism, 
at least in the way we talk about atheism, that there's some, there's some, you can shed some light onto this. So Augustine, very well-known, respected thinker, not just within the religious community, but even, even uh, in, the, in the non-religious community well as well, lived about 350 to 430, that's when he was around. But in his day, uh, he, he wrote about, he commented about atheism, and he just said, it's absurd. Nobody, nobody calls himself an atheist. Even the most brilliant, a-religious people out there wouldn't dare call themselves um, um, an atheist. And actually, on the commentary on this particular psalm, he actually writes about it. He says, um, he says, For not even have the certain sacrilegious and abominable philosophers who entertain perverse and false notions of God dared to say there is no God. Right? Even the most a-religious philosophers out there, the ones who, who completely just live, not caring about God, throwing God down the trash, those people aren't crazy enough to say there isn't a God. So that's like 2,000 years ago. That was kind of it was at least some indication of how it was perceived. Right? And, and part of the reason why it would have, would have been considered so foolish, why Augustine would have said that is, is logically, even in that day, at that day, there really wasn't much of a good reason to believe atheism. There really wasn't much of a good reason to believe atheism. There was plenty of reasons why you might reject Christianity or why you might reject a particular type of a view of God, but to go on and assert that God absolutely does not exist, 2,000 years ago, there was no real reason for it. There was no real arguments for atheism. Even if you kind of turn to more modern time, so there's this... Uh, Thinker, mathematician, philosopher, Burton Russell. He wrote a book. Um, I guess it was actually it was an essay, but, but it was titled, Why I'm Not a Christian. And, and Burton Russell, I would say in many ways, he's kind of like a, like a champion for the modern-day skeptic. I might even say like a saint for many modern-day atheists. But in, in it, he talks about why he doesn't call himself an atheist. Right? He, he completely rejects the, you know, so many notions about God. And he didn't, but doesn't believe in any type of God. But when he actually would go in and say, do I, do I actually believe that there's no God? Would I go and argue that there is no God? He would say, absolutely not. And the thing that he wrote, he just said, I would never say I'm an atheist because I have no argument. And I don't think there's any good argument that can demonstrate God's non-existence. Right? So he has never had that kind of a confidence. Um, in recent years, though, people have more openly would be willing to call themselves an atheist. And part of that is just this, you know, understand there's some difference here of, of what the language we use. So there's, there's, you know, what we call like a negative atheist or a positive atheist. And so some people are atheists simply because they reject all of our reasons about why we believe God. So they're going to say, like, well, I, I don't believe in, in God in the same way I don't believe in Santa Claus. There's just no reason for it. Right? And that's how a lot of people talk about atheism today. And that's very different than, than, than I think historically it's been. Um, there's a, 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 I mentioned him actually a few weeks back, Richard Dawkins. Uh, Richard Dawkins, a, a modern-day atheist, um, still alive, very vocal. And in a TV interview once, he said, man, if I even saw, if I saw a thousand-foot Jesus, and I came face-to-face with a thousand-foot Jesus, and he, and he told me to convert, I wouldn't convert. And I've always been perplexed by that. If you could see a miracle in front of you, you still would reject it. 
I can't help but to say that that's a kind of a dogmatism that isn't well-grounded. It's a kind of a dogmatism that isn't well-grounded. Um, Quentin Smith, you know, a good friend of Richard Dawkins, another thinker, atheist, at, a, at an atheist convention, and those do exist. They gather around and they talk about what it means to be an atheist. Um, he kind of tried to rally his atheist uh, brothers and sisters, and he said, man, if you were to take all the arguments, modern arguments for the existence of God, and you were to compare it against the arguments that, that critique the existence of God, it's a three to one. There are three times more good arguments for the existence of God than anything we have against it. And he was trying to rally, like, come on, guys, let's think through some answers here. Let's come to some conclusions here. Part of the things I just want us to understand here is that atheism is rarely about the evidence. And I don't want to say that about a broad stroke to every single atheist alive. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. Right? Because there are intelligent atheists who have good reasons. I'm just saying, generally, there's many atheists, most atheists, at least atheists I've come across, I would say it isn't largely, it is not about the evidence. Uh, so I had, a, in my master's program for philosophy, I wrote a thesis. And my thesis was on, um, on, uh, on an argument for the existence of God. And one of the things that you do when you defend a thesis is after you write it, you present it to a group of, of, of professors that you've chosen. They're on your, on, your, on, your, on your team, so to speak, your thesis team. And then they would give me some criticism. And so we'd walk through the argument, we'd talk about it, and we kind of went back and forth. We'd have some arguments with each other. And then one of the professors says to me, at the end, when all was said and done, and they gave me the approval, said, okay, your, your, your thesis has been defended, you're, you're good to move on, you're, you can graduate now. One of the professors said to me, he says, you know, out of all these years I've been studying philosophy, I've never really thought about any arguments about the existence of God. And yet at the same time, I know he was somebody who talked openly in classrooms about that he didn't believe in God. And he's saying, I've never really studied any thought about these arguments. I've never really analyzed these any deeper. And part of me was baffled. Because philosophy, it all starts with this question about whether or not you believe in God. All your questions about ethics and meaning and purpose, you can imagine, those change whether or not you believe God exists or it doesn't. And I just think it's one of these things where I come back to I come back to this idea that, that atheism is rarely about evidence. Atheism is rarely about evidence. Um, I, I, I don't... I will simply say this. I find that for so many, it becomes foolish for us to say in our heart that there is no God. And I think for, for so many atheists, if it isn't about reason... Right? If, it isn't, if it isn't about evidence, then there's this place in which they're saying from their heart they don't believe in God. That it's, it's a kind of a view about the world they don't really want to accept. It means that it isn't, about, it isn't about evidence. If it isn't about evidence, then there's something from desire that drives them to want to reject the idea of God. There's maybe some emotion or some history. Right? This is something that's all too common or familiar with us. We get in these conversations about people who are very um, not religious. And what we discover is that there's something that happened in their history. Some kind of an abuse, some kind of a hurt, some kind of a failure in their life that then drives them away from this idea of God. Recently, I was, I was counseling a, a couple, a young couple, and that came out. A guy, a gentleman said, man, I'm not, 
I'm, I do not believe uh, in God. And that's largely because of my background. I was forced into a religion. My parents were religion, but they didn't live like it. They believed in God, yet they didn't live like they believed in God. And then they're just shoving religion down my throat, and it drives me away. And this is the response I would have to that. To reject God because of, some, because of some pain or heartache. To reject God because of some desire. Like, I don't want to deal with that kind of a, of a lifestyle. That's simply foolish. It's simply foolish to, to, to make your whole life, to bet your whole life, your whole eternity on something because of a, of a simple desire to run from God. But I think what's worse than professed atheism is this practical atheism. When we profess God doesn't exist, or sorry, when we profess that God does exist, that we believe it, but we live in such a way that God does not exist. That's way more foolish. That's way more dangerous. When we live like apatheists, and that's far too common today. I think many atheists are atheists today because of theists and Christians who live apatheistically, who live indifferently to their faith. When we don't live to the standards that we profess, right? and I'm saying that we're not even trying to live to the standards when we profess, um, uh, uh, we, we fail those who are investigating Christianity. Right? Because if you live as if God doesn't matter to you, Right? You live in such a way that it says that God doesn't matter to you, then you're telling the world that God doesn't matter to you. If you live prioritizing everything in your life above God, above church, above scripture, above prayer, that continually you notice this routine in your faith in which you're belittling these practices, these critical practices of our faith. When you live in such a way, prioritizing the wrong things, you tell the world that God isn't a priority. When you live under-prioritizing prayer, you tell the world prayer doesn't matter. When you live neglecting the Bible, you show the world, you tell the world that the Bible doesn't matter to me. If you live undervaluing Jesus, his church, and his mission, you you are telling the world that Jesus, his church, and his mission doesn't matter. I think many atheists, many people, many people who've walked away from religion have done so because they're looking, they're looking at so many theists, so many Christians, and see how we, how we live in such a way that God doesn't matter. As bold and as hard as it might sound, I'll stick to it, that atheism, whether it's something that we simply profess with our mouth, but whether it's something that we do practically, it's foolish. Now, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? There's, there's two things for us to consider. First is this. I'd ask you to consider, do you really believe God exists? Do you really believe in the claims of Christianity? It's not something I think we openly wrestle with in church often, but we should. Do you really believe in the claims of Christianity? Are you really convinced of the Bible? Are you really convinced of the person of who Jesus is? Right? Um, 
Don't, don't, don't come to this with this kind of an apotheistic view. Say like, yeah, sure, why not? Yeah, sure, you know, the Bible, my parents valued it. My parents are Christians, so I'm a Christian. That's one of my favorite questions I would ask when I was a youth pastor. It's one of my favorite questions I would ask youth. Why are you a Christian? And honestly, like, oftentimes it's just like they've never even thought about it. And the response would be, well, because my parents are. I think that's kind of an apotheistic answer. Right? It doesn't show that's something that's valuable or important to you. And so I ask you, do you really believe that God exists? Do you really believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that the Bible is the word of God? Is that something you really do believe? Because if you don't, if you aren't convinced, if you're not convinced enough to do anything about it, it's not, it's not moving any kind of ways, uh, please do not let that go unaddressed. It is critical that we have become convinced, wholly convinced about who God is. And I think the thing is, is that specifically to this congregation, I would say this, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor or you've been a Christian for 50 years. If you find yourself kind of wrestling with this thought, man, I don't know, does prayer really matter? Is the Bible real, right? Don't, don't let those little doubts go ignored because it's affecting your walk, it's affecting your faith, it's affecting those, those around you in your life who, who are investigating Jesus. Right, so the first thing I would say, you know, what do we, what do, we do with this, this, this you know, um, psalm that's, that's trying to lead us away from this apotheism? What do we do with it? Well, the first I would say, man, if you, if you are not convinced in your heart, then figure it out. Pursue it. But the second thing is, I would say is this. If you really believe, live like it. Do you really believe live like it? Live every day. Make it a point every day. A dem- uh, figuring out, demonstrating that God exists. What would it look like for your life to be shaped in such a way that every day you're living in a way that demonstrates that you fully and firmly believe in God? That if someone was peering in and investigating and looking at your life, that, that they would they would obviously know how this person really believes. This person really believes. This, for this person, Jesus really matters. Live in such a way that shows Jesus really matters, the church really matters, that obeying him really matters, that studying his word really matters, that this is an imperative, that we have to share that sense of urgency that Jesus shows us in Mark that it's an imperative. This is something, there's something, it's important that this is essential. This is critical to the success of our life. To the mission we've been given. Tell, tell the world that Jesus matters to you by living in such a way that shows that Jesus matters to you. If you don't take church or scripture seriously, if you don't take prayer seriously, if you don't take evangelism seriously, if you don't take discipleship seriously... You aren't taking Jesus seriously. Right? Because those are intimately tied together. And so pause for a moment and just ask, is there something God is calling to you at this moment? I can't help but to think about this, 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 this call, this conviction for us to not be professing with our hearts that, that, that God doesn't exist. 
For us to be people who are living in such a way that demonstrates that God exists, I can't help but to wonder or just to hear what is it that God is drawing our attention to? Is there something that God is calling your attention to right now in your life? Is God drawing your attention to something? Are there ways in your life in which you live why God doesn't exist? Are there places in your life that you don't value God? Does your prayer life look like this Like this is what Jesus said it was? This is the source of power. Does your prayer life look like that? Do you read the Bible as if it really was your manual to successful living? Do you treat it that way? Does your love for the church embody the love that Jesus commanded to? And we're going to get to that in just a second. I want us to live like we believe, like we really do believe. Um, every single one of you in this room, you know, there's a priority that I would, I would place on you. And I, and I would say that, I don't say that lightly. Um, being with people, investing in people, loving people, That's a priority in my life. And it's really, really important. And why? Um, It's it's less about you. It's less about people. And it's more about Jesus. Because you look at the words of Jesus, right? In John 13, 34 through 35, he says, um, he says, so now I'm giving you a new command. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Dwell on that for a moment. Because these are words that Jesus says to his disciples uh, moments before he has pinned to a cross and bled to death for the sake of those disciples, for the sake of us. And the call that he's placing on us, on them, on us, on all Christians, is love each other the way I have loved you. Love each other the way I've loved you. Um, there are so many things, so many ways we can take that, ways that we can apply that to our life. Of course, we can look at our sin, we can look at any command that Jesus gives and just kind of ask, in all seriousness, man, are we, are we living this command out as if it really is important to us, that we really believe it? Are we taking God seriously in this? But, but what I, what I want to wrap our head around today is just taking that verse from Jesus and asking ourselves, man, do, do we love Jesus' church? Do we love the brothers and sisters in Christ the way that Jesus loved us? Is that, do you think that is obvious to you? Is it, is it obvious that, man, these people here are a priority? Do you value them? Do you desire for them? Do you appreciate them? Are you willing to, and more importantly, have you sacrificed for them? Have you, have you bled for them? Have you labored for them? Fed and clothed and served them? This is the model that Jesus gives for us. Jesus, Jesus went to the cross for the sake of his disciples. That is the model that he gives us. And he says that is the standard of love. That was one of Jesus' most crucial commands for us. One of the most essential duties of the church. 
if we're going to live like we really believe Jesus, if we're going to live in such a way that we really show, man, I am convinced that my heart is professing God exists. My heart is professing the truth of Jesus. My heart is professing the claims of Scripture. If we're going to live like that, we would take this command very, very seriously. There's a standard of love that was incredibly sacrificial, willing to put itself at stake for the sake of others. When we don't love the way, uh, we don't love the church the way Jesus loved us, we communicate to the world the church really doesn't matter all that much. And if somebody really knows scripture, they're also going to know that that means that Jesus' words don't matter all that much. Jesus doesn't matter all that much. When we belittle the love for the church, we belittle Jesus. Practically, we live like atheists. And I think one of the dangers in that, one, just one danger in that, is that I think we ultimately push people towards atheism. We push people away from Jesus. When on the other hand, we do the opposite. When we love his church the way he intended. When we love the church the way he did, in his own words, we show the world who we belong to. We show the world what matters to us. We show the world who matters to us. We show the world that we wholly believe in God. We wholly believe in Jesus. We value his words and we value his church. Your love is the greatest outreach tool we have. It's the greatest outreach tool you have. Right? Your love for each other, your love for people. It is the greatest outreach tool that the, that the church has. Don't miss that. Don't neglect it. Don't ignore it. Where is God challenging you to love more deeply? You just were to assess the way you love people, the way you sacrifice people, the way you, you kind of prioritize people. Does it, does it show that you have a love and you have a passion, that you sincerely believe in Jesus? Are there areas in your life and you can, you can boldly say, man, there's, there's weakness here. There's a way in which that I, I'm limited in my love for people here. Where, where is Jesus drawing your attention to? Love the way Jesus loved. Show the world you believe in Jesus by the way you love his community, by the way you love his word, by the way you love his people. Live, really live like you believe and trust Jesus. Let's pray together. God, I'm I am thankful this morning. I'm thankful for your word. God, that you call us to be people who don't live just like everyone else in the world.
God, that this prayer shows us, this psalm shows us God, it shows us that, that you call us to a, a deeper life. While the whole world is not pursuing you, God, I ask that you mold our heart, you mold the church, not just this church, not just Bridges Church, God, but I, the churches across America, churches across the world, God, that you mold us, you shape us, you convict us in such a way that it pushes and drives us to be people who truly Seek after you. Maybe, God, there's some of us in this room, Lord, who have been a bit casual in the way we've dealt with our faith and the way that we handle our faith. And God, I ask that you interrupt that. that you challenge that. Maybe some of us in this room believe that we have it figured out. And God, I know that we haven't. That we haven't figured it out. God, I ask that you interrupt that. That we would be humble to God. That we would recognize the places where our faith is weak. But God, I, I, more than anything today, God, I appreciate your grace and your love in our life. That even though that some days I live as if you don't matter to me, some days I live in such a way that your word doesn't matter to me, that prayer doesn't matter to me, that even I make those mistakes, God, that even though I make those mistakes, your love is persistent. Your love is bigger than my failures. Father, I ask that you take these broken words that I've shared this morning, Lord, and that you make them valuable to each one of our hearts. You might challenge us, you might convict us, you might mold us so that we might live different. We might value your mission more. We might value your word more. We might value prayer more. We might fight sin more intensely. Love more devotedly. Encourage us and challenge us, God. We thank you and we praise you. In your son's name, amen.